Praise the Lord. It's good to be in the house of the Lord once more. What a glorious day this is. I pray everybody had a safe and glorious July 4th. Uh, what a great day. What a great day. Uh, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 to 18. We're going to pick it up where we last left off when I uh, preached from the book of Matthew. If you recall, when we last looked at Matthew chapter 2, we saw the wise men, or the magi, had followed a special star. It's called his star, Christ's star, right to the birthplace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And once there, in Bethlehem, they bowed before him and worshipped him, signifying his deity as God of God, King of kings and Lord of lords. And they also offered him gifts of value, something that cost them something to show that he was worthy, worthy to be praised. So now they could go home. They could go home knowing that the promised Savior had come. He had arrived. They were satisfied. However, they were given clear instructions by Herod that once you found him who's born king, get word back to me that I also may come and worship him. Not. Herod wanted to destroy the newborn king. He was afraid that this king would ruin his Herodian dynasty, but he was so far off. The Lord came for much more than that. But of course, God could not let anything happen to his only begotten son. So the Magi were warned in a dream to take a different route, to go home by uh, another way, so that Herod would not be able to accomplish his plan. Now getting back to Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, Joseph also was told in a dream that you need to go from this place to leave your family and friends familiarity and go down to Egypt because Herod seeks the life of the child. Now when uh, we think about it, we try to go over what was in Herod's, not Herod, but Joseph's mind and Mary's mind a time that should have been a cause for celebration, it, it, it turned a little bit to where we can't really celebrate the birth of a healthy child. And more than that, the birth of the Savior. That's what we're told. This is the Savior of the world who has come into uh, our, our home. It should have been a time to say, yay, he's here, but now we have to go. We have to leave. And they weren't told at that time how long they would be gone. But they left. And so here's where we pick it up. In verse 16 of Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 16 to 18 as I said. There the text says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. I have titled this sermon, 
Weep with those who weep. Weep with those who weep. And I have two points. Point number one. Worship the Lord God with your all. Love the Lord God with everything you have. And point number two. Love your neighbors enough to weep with them. Love your neighbors enough to weep with them. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We are gathered together in your presence. We thank you that you have given us your word to, 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 to learn from, to grow from, to worship you correctly. So as we go through your word today, I pray you would use me to speak boldly and accurately, Lord God, to loosen my tongue that I may not stutter or stammer, that I may uh, bring the word slowly and clearly to your people, to your flock, that we would be encouraged yet convicted, comforted, and guided honestly. I thank you that you have blessed us with such precious truths about your nature, your character, what you expect from us, and who you have made us through the blood of your Son. Thank you, Lord God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Point number one, love the Lord God with your all. Let's look at these verses a little closer opening them up. Verse 16 once again says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Now, as I stated last time, we were in this portion of Scripture that Herod was exceedingly wicked exceedingly wicked. Not only did he have all the male children two years old and under killed in Bethlehem, but also in the surrounding regions. He had them destroyed. And many, many people still wonder to this day, how could a loving God sit idly by as these precious innocents were destroyed? Why would uh, God allow such a horrible butchery of innocent babies to take place, snatched from the arms of their mothers. As painful as it must have been for all who dwelt in these Jewish communities, the comfort, peace, and joy these children experienced once they entered heaven and are still experiencing to this day far outweighs any anguish they experienced at that time. Years ago, and even in different parts of the world today, where suffering and poverty is the norm, death isn't the worst thing that can happen to you. And this is what we can't grasp as a society, as a whole, because we live in one of the most luxurious and lavish places on the planet in the history of the world. So we can't grasp how death is better than suffering most of us don't know what real suffering is, myself included. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I'm, I'm driving down 23rd Street near Fifth Avenue, and, and I'm stopped at a light, and I look over, and I see a, a homeless guy sitting on the curb, sitting on the curb, and he has a cart with his stuff in it. But yet he pulls out his cell phone, and he's dialing. 
And I'm like, praise God. You know, I'm not saying every homeless person has that situation, but when we talk about poverty, first century poverty in the Middle East, we have no comprehension of what that looks like. Most of us, most of us, most of us, we look at these infants dying and we say, why God? But even in Job's day, he understood that dying early, even as a stillborn infant, was better than living a life of pain and suffering. Job wasn't speaking in hyperbolic language or even exaggerating when in the midst of his torment, he cried out, why did I not, I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts that I should nurse? Or why was I not hidden as a stillborn child? as infants who never see the light. There the wicked cease from trouble, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Question God if you will, but the scriptures teach that his all-wise actions knows how to bring good out of every evil circumstance. We quote Romans 8.28 all day, every day. But do we grasp the key phrase within that verse? It says, and we know for those that love themselves, all things work. Wait a minute. And we know that all things work together for who? For those who love God. For those who love God, they work for good. And we are quick to sing songs of, Lord, I love thee. Lord, you're precious to me. But when God, in his goodwill, his perfect holiness, drops a bowl of tribulation in your life, how do you respond? What are the words that come out of your mouth? Would the world know that you love God in the midst of your sickness? In the midst of the doctrine of subtraction when God begins taking away from your life? In the midst of your loneliness and despair, poverty, death of a loved one? Is it still, I love God. And the heart of the verse is I love God more than anything. How do we know that? How, how, how do we know it's not just I love God and I love myself and I love my parents and I love my babies all equally? Because at the end of the verse, I'll read the whole thing in context. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, it's all about God. It's all about putting God first. God has a way of squeezing our hearts. And you know what happens when your heart gets squeezed? Whatever's inside comes out. If you have a seed of bitterness in there or resentment against someone and God begins to squeeze and your finances are low, the cupboards are bare, the job says I'm laying you off, you're not getting enough sleep, maybe you're working too much, your heart is getting squeezed. And here's the thing, the people closest to you feel it. 
They feel the brunt of your anger, your short patience. They feel the brunt of your sarcasm. By the way, we think we're not hurting people with sarcasm, but I don't see that as a, as a God-honoring attribute. Do we love God more than anything? Because only then can you say all things work together for good. And please understand that all things work according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1, 11, while at the same time working together for the good of his children, which is their sanctification, their transformation, their change into the image of Christ, so that once they are transported into heaven, they don't all of a sudden have to begin walking in holiness. What's this new strange thing? I have to stop cursing now? No. Everything now is to get you ready, prepare you for what it is on the other side. Look like my son now so that when others look at you, they know what I'm like. They know what I'm like. And, and the ones that I, I, I open their eyes and I breathe life into them and shake the death out of them and place life in them, they'll know that life only comes through my son. And I'll give them a new heart. I'll regenerate within them life. That's why our goal each and every day is to actively love God with our all, our whole heart, not half-heartedly, with all of our strength, not after we've given everybody and everything else our strength at the end of the day, now we want to open the word of God and wonder why we fall asleep. We've given everybody else our all, and on empty, running on fumes, now we want to worship God. If we truly believe that all things work together for good, for God's purposes, our whole effort in life should be to love him with everything we have. The Christian who has placed his total trust in God, can declare, I don't understand why everything is happening to me that's happening to me. I don't understand how could my life be so hard. I've done everything right. He doesn't have to whine. He knows that it's for God's purpose. And he loves God despite what's happening because he knows he deserves worse. He knows God doesn't owe him anything. But God gives. God gives, and he, he, he just gives us so much more than we deserve, and, 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 and exceedingly and abundantly more than we can ever ask or think. Eternal life? Me? But God, out of his goodness, let us not be like those in the days of Isaiah, who were only living to satisfy the flesh, spending money and laboring on things that could not satisfy. To bring some conviction, clarity, and even comfort, Isaiah wrote something to them in Isaiah chapter 57. He wrote something that hopefully would prod them out their earthliness and get them into seeing things from an eternal perspective. In Isaiah chapter 57, 57 verses 1 through 3, he wrote, The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. 
For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. God sees tomorrow. We don't. So when, when tragedy happens right here to someone we love and they're gone, we're bewildered. But God knows. The word says he takes them away from calamity. Many of these people in Isaiah's day were facing death sooner than they thought. And Isaiah is saying the calamity is coming. God is ushering some of you into a better place. Yes, you, you know about Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but you're still living ungodly, fighting with your brothers, if you read the text, 57 and 58. But there's more. Stop fighting for stuff. Look at life from a godly perspective. He goes on to say, they enter into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. To bring some conviction, clarity, and comfort to the church. The Apostle Paul says it this way. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 and 9. Wherever you are, make it your aim to please God. And the Savior himself promised, if anyone serves me, he must follow me and where I am, there will my servant also be. Words of comfort that death is not the end. As heartbreaking as the death of the infants in Bethlehem was, it was used by God as a means of transferring these innocent little ones from a place of poverty and suffering into his glorious presence, while at the same time, it was used to bring upon Herod the guilt, infamy, and coals of fire upon his head for the day of judgment. God will repay him for every evil act he has ever committed. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Previous generations of Christians used to be comforted by those words. But for the most part, today's Christian, either they don't believe it or they think there's another way to bring about the eternal satisfaction for justice that they want. But here's a summary of what the Bible teaches. Nothing but eternal judgment will bring upon eternal justice. And nothing but God's eternal justice will fill us with the eternal satisfaction that every man, boy, woman, and girl longs for. Eternal justice, eternal satisfaction. Remember the souls of those saints who were under the altar in heaven, who had been slain for the word of God and their testimony? Talk about injustice. Remember how they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were in heaven and they were still looking for justice. They were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. 
But then you move further along down the story to Revelation chapter 21, which informs us of what happens immediately after the great white throne judgment of God in verses 11 through 15 of Revelation 20. But we're going to go to the first few verses of Revelation 21. What happens after the eternal justice of God is handed out? God says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give the, from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The Lord is saying to his people, this is what you've been yearning for. Here is the eternal justice, righteousness, and peace you have been seeking all of your life. It comes to you in full at this time, because vengeance has always been mine, and I have repaid. The only questions that are left is, A, do you really believe a day of deliverance is coming for God's children? And B, do you really believe a day of judgment is coming for the wicked? If you don't believe either one, then there's a whole different set of problems you have to deal with both now and when the Lord returns. But if you do believe it, it should make a tremendous impact on how you respond to earthly injustices. And if we truly believe that God is the faithful and righteous judge over everyone we meet, it should motivate all of us to love God and our neighbors with a passion. What is this passionless love? What's that about? Every person that you claim to love should know you love them. Which moves us to point number two. Love your neighbors enough to weep with them. Love your neighbors enough to weep with them. Verses 17 and 18 of Matthew chapter 2 says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by, by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now this quotation is taken from Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 15. And I'm going to ask you to turn there for a minute because we're going to be there, of, uh, I don't know, maybe five, six, ten minutes. But I want you to see what I'm talking about, right? Because I'm not just going to read verse 15 from Jeremiah 31. I'm going to read verses 15 to 17 to give us a little bit more of the background. It's a wonderful chapter. And I'll tell you right now, what's going on is, is, is God's people, I won't say at war, basically they were destroyed. They were destroyed. And, 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 and Babylon came up against them. They circled them all around. So nothing goes in or out. Nothing went in or out. No food, nothing, no supplies. And over time, the people began to starve. And if you read the book of Lamentations, you'll see what was happening, where they were so hungry that the mothers would take their babies and boil them in pots. 
so that they would have something to eat. Yes, the book of Lamentations, spend some time there, and you can get an idea of what poverty, suffering, tribulation really looks like. In verses 15 to 17 of Jeremiah 31, we read, Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. Approximately 600 years, years before the infant, infants in Matthew chapter 2 were destroyed, God used Babylon to ravage and almost completely wipe his people out because of their wickedness. Jeremiah was there, along with everyone who had escaped the destruction of the city, according to Jeremiah chapter 40 and verse 1. The nobles of Jerusalem had been slain. Those of nobility, those of great wealth and power, they were slain. The sons of the king, Zedekiah, were slain. And to show you how corrupt Nebuzaradan, the captain of Nebuchadnezzar's army, was, he brought the king out. And he said, go get his sons. And he slaughtered the king's sons right before him and then took the king's eyes out. So that would be the last thing he would ever see. This was a vicious time, full of death and despair as the people were forced to start on their mournful journey from a burnt-down Jerusalem to a foreign land, Babylon. Then we get these words out of nowhere in verse 15 of Jeremiah 31. Rachel is heard weeping in Ramah for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. What is that about? Before they were to start their march off to Babylon, they were assembled at Ramah, which was a, a small town in Benjamin, located next to Bethlehem. Rachel was one of Jacob's wives. She was the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. But here she represents all of the mothers in Jerusalem whose children were slaughtered by Nebuchadnezzar, and she's weeping bitterly for them. Now, unlike the innocent children who were in Matthew chapter 2 slaughtered, most of these people were wicked, and they had abandoned the ways of God. Second Chronicles chapter 36 reports that all the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful and followed all the abominations of the nation. Yet Rachel is heard weeping bitterly for them. Keep that in mind. She's weeping for the wicked who are experiencing God's judgment. In Jeremiah 31, the design of the prophecy was not only to describe the sorrowful departure of the nation into captivity, but it also tells of God's promise to restore them and to return them to the promised land. That's why in uh, verse 16 of Jeremiah 31, uh, after telling of Rachel's weeping, there it says, keep your voice from weeping 
and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. But that's not all there is to it. If you move further down in the chapter, there's a better promise, a bigger promise, not just about the land, but there's something about a new covenant in verses 31 through 34 of the same chapter. There it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The question is, what does this have to do with Matthew chapter 2? Everything. The mentioning of Rachel weeping for her children in the same context that speaks of the arrival of a new covenant is huge. Matthew 2.17 uh, declares that it is the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. And for the new covenant to be implemented, the giver or the testator of the new covenant had to be present. The time of the Messiah had to be near, and as we all know, not only was the time near, but Jesus the Messiah had arrived. The great day spoken of in Zechariah chapter 9 had come. In Zechariah chapter 9, uh, verse 9, he said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. At this point, I have to make a public service announcement. At this point right here. And what is that announcement? The king of kings has come. He is righteous and salvation is in his hand. And if you know in your heart that you don't have a relationship with the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the one who has salvation in his hands. Today is the day to repent, to turn from your wicked ways, to cry out to the Lord. I pray that if anyone here does not know the Lord, does not enjoy his people, does not enjoy worshiping him with your whole heart, dwells in sin much more than you should, I pray that when this service is over, you will find someone who is a member of this church if you are here today. If not, you can call the number on the Facebook channel and speak to someone and ask them, how can I be saved? That is the most important question you can ever ask. And the second thing you can do is to listen and cry out for the Lord for salvation. There is nothing more important than that. Public service announcement over. So what can we learn from Rachel's weeping? What can we learn from Rachel's weeping? In Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 7, Jeremiah confesses that, that, that his eyes weep bitterly because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. 
In Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 10, Jeremiah says to weep bitterly for him who goes away. Rachel is weeping for those who weep and for those who have been snatched away, even though they were snatched away according to God's righteous judgment. I believe we can learn to weep with those who weep. Some of us have a, a, a disposition that looks like we don't care. We may have a, a disposition that just says we go about our way and nothing else uh, concerns me. Now, something may be going on in the inside, but your brothers and sisters could use a talk, a word, a moment of prayer on the side. No passionless love, but time. Right? The Lord's day used to be longer than two hours. <laughs> right? Much longer. The further you go uh, closer to the resurrection, the, the closer you get to the resurrection back in time, these days were much longer. Now we've cut it and we have blocked it off and we have other things blocked off on the Lord's day. Praise God, but I pray that, you know, that, that's just, you know, something you would work out with the Lord. But bless the Lord God for what he has done through Christ and his word. I believe we can Learn to show empathy for anyone who loses their life in an unjust and brutal fashion. And the key word is unjust. Just by the mere fact. How can we do that? They were made in the image of God. Like we are made in the image of God. Did you notice once again that Rachel is weeping in both cases? She wept for the innocent infants in Jesus' day. And she also wept for the wicked in Jeremiah's day. So what's my point? How come we, as children of the same God, are so divided over which unjust and ungodly killing is more important? One group of Christians say abortion is evil and we must speak out against it because we're pro-life. And I say amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. However, when it comes to someone being killed unjustly as an adult, that same group who cares so much about life shows so little to no empathy for those killed unjustly outside of the womb, even though the person slain was also made in the image of God. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32, we're told God himself has no pleasure in the death of anyone. And in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, God says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Then again in James chapter 3, verse 9, James, through the Holy Spirit, says we shouldn't even curse one another because we were made in the likeness of God. We should be brought to tears like Rachel whenever we witness or hear of any unjust acts of heartlessness and brutality against anyone. Whether it's the unborn in the womb or the person on the street or the people in their homes, we should be weeping in our hearts because they were made in the image of God. God, we are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we have all read the parable of the Good Samaritan over and over again. But it seems as if we don't like the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Who was 
the Samaritan's neighbor, the good Samaritan's neighbor, according to Jesus. It was the Jewish man who had different beliefs and a long-standing bitterness between himself and Samaritans. But when it came down to showing compassion and mercy, the Samaritan showed it when it was time to show it. And Jesus says for all of his people, his children, to go and do likewise. If you, personally, you, haven't felt any sorrow for those who have been killed unjustly, have you at least felt a smidgen, a little empathy for those you worship with who are of the same ethnicity of someone who has been killed unjustly and have been weeping in their hearts? Can you even weep with them as the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 says, I wish myself could be a curse for my brothers, the Jews. That was his heart and he wasn't rebuked for it. Then there are those on the other side of the same divisive coin. These will want to respond to certain injustices because they're tired of seeing this happen over and over again, but they want to respond in an unbiblical way. We must always make sure our responses line up with scripture, especially when the world is pressuring the church to do something. First off, we have to remember that the world wants no part of the body of Christ until they need a mass community group to help promote their cause. Then once they're finished with you, they don't wanna hear about your morality. They're done with you and they move on. Please don't fall for the okey-doke. Secondly, but most importantly, is we must recognize our mandate to flood the world with the gospel message according to the words of scripture, that Jesus saves sinners apart from the social gospel, apart from liberation theology. Many would have you believe that the three are the same, but they are not. Al Mohler, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, does a great job explaining the difference in a recent article that he wrote. There he says, as we consider the specific issue of systemic racism from a biblical worldview, we must recognize several dangers. Dangers that could lead us away from a proper and biblical pursuit of justice. The first danger is Protestant liberalism. The Protestant liberals replaced the gospel of Jesus Christ. The proclamation that God forgives sinners through his only son as the substitutionary atonement for our sin with what became known as the social gospel. Instead of the good news of salvation and eternal life, Protestant liberals focused on the improvement of human society. This altered the church's mission from conversion and evangelism to social progress and political agendas. Over time, the social gospel progressed into the liberation theology movement. This theological movement, which accelerated during the late, the late 20th century, took the social gospel to its quantum level. Liberation theology 
jettisoned the good news of Christ's death and resurrection and replaced it with the promise of social and moral progress that would liberate human beings through a revolutionary platform. Does that sound familiar? Liberation theology quickly functioned as the ideological foundation for several movements, including feminist theology and religious support for the LGBTQ movement. What Protestant liberalism and the social gospel started, liberation theology, theology took to its ultimate conclusion, end quote. It's an excellent article. If you want me to send it to you, I will. But this is why we are to keep preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ according to the uncompromising word of God. And keep showing Christ to everyone he has placed in our path. Think good Samaritan. It was along his journey, right? His journey that he came upon someone who was bruised, bruised and beaten and needed help, and he had compassion on him. He did not start or attempt to gather people to start a revolution. He did the hard thing and helped somebody to where it cost him something. Please don't place your faith in politics or worldly movements. But I ask you today to trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Let us pray. Father, at a time like this that can be so explosive, that in some places it is so explosive, we pray for wisdom, we pray for restraint. We pray that we would trust your word to keep us, to guide us, to bring healing first to our hearts, to bring compassion to our inner being, Lord, that we may reach those in our paths, that we may take time to help those who are hurting on the inside, especially those that we know closely, whether it's our personal family of the flesh or our personal family in the spirit where we worship with. Let us put aside our, our, our political ideologies, Lord God. Let us put aside what we uh, 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 want to hold to so strongly when we see someone weeping. Let us learn to weep with those who weep, even when we can't understand it, Lord. Please help us to navigate through these second and third order issues, Lord God. Let us focus on Christ, salvation, the resurrection, the newness of life, sanctification, justification, the virgin birth. These things bring life and godliness in your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.